0: Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about anti-Hollywood himself, Robert Altman. Oh yeah, the Maverick, Popeye himself. <laughs> it's weird that like the Maverick is what he's described as everywhere. Like You cannot find any article without someone going, this Maverick director, Altman, just doing it his own way.
1: And so now we're going to do the revisionist take, right? We're <laughs> going to say he's not. He was actually Yeah, he's just a, a studio hack. Yeah, the whole time. <laughs>
0: Altman is a director that everywhere I look, Altman seems to be the director that people go, I want to explore his entire filmography.
1: Really? That's not the perception I get. Because no? What I hear is people saying half of them are great, but the other half, you better stay away from those. And were you a big Altman fan? Oh yeah, I'm an Altman fan, but I have to say that I have a somewhat skewed perspective on Altman because mm. I feel like I've seen most or perhaps all of the ones that are considered good or great and i've seen only a couple of the bad ones so i like i think he's great i think he's made at least two movies that i consider among the very best ever made nashville and mccabe and mrs miller
0: that was a problem that i had when i uh started doing research for this podcast is that i looked at his filmography and i went oh man i've seen almost all of the good ones but there's all these other movies that i haven't seen yeah and about like halfway through that list i was like huh no i'm good i get it so you didn't watch quintet I did not watch Quintet.
1: the uh, Which, for a long time, my parents said was the worst movie they'd ever seen. Did they see it in theaters? <laughs> yes, they did.
0: Or were they like, you were conceived during a screening of Quintet? And we feel... Good Lord, I hope not.
1: <laughs> perhaps they were so bored. I mean, Quintet came came out 10 years before I was born,
0: so probably not. Well, your uh, lost brother, um, Bill Sloan.
1: <laughs> One thing about Altman that I think is perhaps germane is that he was often considered this kind of countercultural director, this, this kind of rambunctious spirit. It, but he was also a late bloomer. Yeah. M- MASH, his biggest hit, and the movie that really launched his career, even though we don't know the stuff before that, he was 45 years old when he made it.
0: Altman worked a lot in the industry, making industrial films for Calvin Films. He worked in television on shows like Combat. There's the- a
1: film about James Dean that he made, a documentary, I think, The James Dean Story. Yeah, exactly.
0: And he tried to get his filmmaking career started with a picture called The Delinquents that he funded himself, but it didn't lead to any kind of feature film uh, making career. And there
1: was also That Cold Day in the Park, which mm-hmm. was just on the cusp of MASH, and which I think is quite good.
0: And if you look even before MASH, there's also a film like Countdown that he made, which was another studio-like picture, which he got fired from during the editing pr- process. That movie has some of his overlapping
1: dialogue in it, mm-hmm. uh, an early example.
0: But like you said, MASH is the one that really lifted him to the um, the great because it was actually a script that had gone around Hollywood and a lot of people, such luminaries as Sidney J. Fury. Who wrote it? Was it Ring Lardner?
1: Was it one of those uh, Blacklist guys, I think?
0: Famously, Altman threw the script out. Yeah. And he let his stars and the situation define what kind of movie it would be. You know
1: what's amazing about MASH is that it made what today would be the equivalent of like $450 million.
0: That is unbelievable. For
1: a movie that is basically a downbeat, uh, somewhat difficult to follow, quirkily funny uh, movie about the despair of war.
0: <laughs> and I revisited MASH for this podcast, and I found that I liked it even less than the first time I saw it.
1: Yeah, it's a movie that I've seen maybe three times, each time hoping that I will like it. And, you know, these guys are just... Jerks. Yeah. Uh, and some of the stuff they do I- in the movie, like all of the stuff commit against... I think commit is the right word. Yes. Commit against hot legs. Uh, uh, hot lips. Hot, hot lips. Excuse me. Uh, y- y- I mean, it's it's really vile. And honestly. by the
0: end, she's just on their side when yeah. they play the uh, climactic football game, which does feature uh, an introducing Fred Williamson.
1: At playing, uh, what is it? Spear Chucker Jones. Is oh, my God. Name? Yeah.
0: That's the kind of humor within this film. It's undeniable that the mix of documentary kind of realism with this Mad Magazine-style silliness is appealing. But once that fades away while watching the film, you're left with something so hollow and hateful.
1: It is a very hateful film. It has this kind of, like, fratty vibe Mm -hmm. to it that I don't like. But uh, maybe just to talk about what's good about M.A.S.H. and what does age well... So the movie is famously set during the Korean War, which, you know, nobody knows much about kind of kind of America's Forgotten War, Mm -hmm. but it was made during the Vietnam War. And basically we are to we're basically to project the Vietnam War onto it. It's set in the medical camp. Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould are two wisecracking Groucho Marx-esque medics. And uh, we see a lot of really brutal surgery footage. Uh, A lot of death, a lot of despair, and basically, even though it's not put out in such over-the-top terms, uh, the way these guys cope with the horror of war is basically to just be like goofballs and assholes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there's something about that that I think I like. Oh, absolutely. This idea of kind of laughing in the face of horror. And it probably felt very fresh when the movie came out. And I mean, this comedies hadn't been like this yes. before. This, I, I mean, the whole movie, it feels just sort of tossed off. There are no big laugh lines. Uh, I mean, as with all, all of Altman's best movies, it has that sense of like, we're just kind of like overhearing something. The camera's just kind of like floating through this world where we're not really in... Like, it's almost as if we're living there Mm -hmm. as opposed to watching it.
0: Like, there's no real through-line plot. It's just very episodic, which makes sense that it was adapted into the hit TV show called...
1: Mesh. Which I've actually never seen. You've never seen one episode of Mesh? Not a single episode, but I mean I I know, I, I may mean, have seen maybe 30 seconds mm-hmm. of it. I know that tonally it's very different. It's much more of a conventional sitcom. You've
0: never seen the finale where Alan Alda relives the fact that um, he made a mother suffocate his child to survive um, the Viet Cong invading like where they were?
1: Oh man, I didn't know that. I do know that the TV show is preachier than the yeah,
0: film, right? It is. Yeah. Um, And it's also very broadly comedic in a way that the film, I mean the film is pretty like broad uh-huh. like it's not very pointed in its comedy
1: well there's that whole subplot about the guy who thinks he's gay yeah and is gonna commit suicide because <laughs> of it
0: i kept watching it being like wait are they gonna like pull this back <laughs> and like reflect it in a positive light nope that's not gonna happen no it's
1: not a very woke film no. um getting back to sort of the atmosphere of the film the atmosphere of the film is something that i like about altman which is this sense that his best movies feel like they're living organisms they feel like The worlds in his movies existed before the cameras started rolling. And they'll exist
0: after the cameras stop rolling. And,
1: you know, you're looking at the film and, like, there's stuff happening in all planes of the image. There's the overlapping dialogue that kind of trusts you to pick up what's necessary. And even if you don't pick up everything, you'll just get the general sense of it. And, like, there's no... There's no hand-holding in No,
0: there isn't. And this could be extended to its furthest extremes in a film that he made like Brewster Mm McCloud, which is him at his silliest and craziest. Also a movie that I don't like that much. No. But I admire... Very audacious. I
1: admire its spirit. That was his immediate follow-up to M.A.S.H., But there's this prevailing idea that maybe half of his movies are really good to great, and half of them are just sort of inexplicable misfires. And I think more than most filmmakers, his films are dependent on a certain kind of luck and a certain kind of chemistry. If all of the elements are in place, if all the actors are kind of working together, and if Altman... You know, knows what he wants to say with the film and the juices are just flowing kinda right, then it works, and then if it doesn't, it doesn't.
0: Which is surprising that a film like Nashville, which is his biggest and most audacious of all the pictures that he made, does work so well. And I think Nashville is one of the very best movies ever made. It's a movie that it's very difficult to pinpoint anything that's wrong with it because everything works so well. In a film that has twenty-four main characters Mm. and a giant like three-hour-ish runtime. Right. So the film is set in Nashville, music capital of the world. Uh, Me and (laughs) Will's favorite place in the world.
1: (laughs) Country music capital of the world. Basically during four or five days when this unseen presidential candidate, Hal Philip Walker, is campaigning. And there's going to be a big rally for him at the Parthenon. Hal Philip Walker is part of this... I guess archetype of the
0: um, ideology free demagogue, Mm -hmm. which Altman actually inserted into the film because the whole Nixon Watergate situation was going on at the time.
1: It's hard to talk about Nashville without basically making it sound banal because Mm -hmm. I see that in my notes here, I've written that it's like a poem about America. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think uh, as your editor, I'm going to have to send that back to you and get a little bit more specific. It's terrible. But, I mean, it is. It is. It
1: is. I mean, just the sheer range of topics this movie covers, you know, politics, celebrity music. I actually want to hone in on the film's treatment of celebrity, mm-hmm. because there are basically three levels of celebrity that we see. There's the Henry Gibson character, who's this you know, kind of old guard, Nashville, kind of corny, smarmy country singer who is very famous in Nashville, but we get the sense that he's a strictly local phenomenon.
0: Well, the screenwriter, Joanne Teckisbury, I'm probably saying that name incorrectly, (laughs) said that she wanted to have a focus on a kind of fading country star. And Almond's the one that pointed out that there is no such thing as a fading country star like once you're a country star you will always be around
1: but this guy's very famous in nashville and he's almost like an ambassador for nashville but he's not known outside and then you have somebody like barbara jean played by ronnie blakely who's like the biggest country star Mm -hmm. um and so like she outranks him and you can visibly see in henry gibson's face that he doesn't like it (laughs) Um, she She's one who's broken out uh, and is known by other people. But then somebody like Elliot Gould shows up as himself. Or, That's
0: so weird that Elliot or, Gould is himself.
1: Julie Christie shows up as herself. Yep. And Henry Gibson is a total non-entity next to them. And basically the only, the only move that he can play when he's in their company is to act like he's the ambassador for Nashville to say, well, thank you for coming to Nashville and I hope you tell all of your Hollywood friends to come and film here.
0: When I think of Nashville, it's always like moments that or burn into my brain like the striptease that the singer does uh, which is one of the most depressing moments in cinema history
1: her whole story is so sad like when you see her at the end of the movie like off to the side of the Parthenon mm-hmm. uh, because she has been promised that she gets to sing on stage with Barbara Jean and, and so, she
0: doesn't get to sing on but stage. she
1: is on stage She uh, yeah. And, I guess. And, and the way Altman shoots that is brilliant because you just like barely see her at the side of the stage mm. he trusts you to notice that she's there and to make that connection I mean I could just like go all day listing all the great plots in this movie but how about the keenan Wynn story with keenan Wynn and Shelley duvall he's the old man uh with the wife in the hospital
0: and uh shelly duvall is his niece and he just wants Shelley duvall to see her aunt before she dies and every time shelly duvall is about to go and see her whoop she gets distracted by jeff goldblum yeah <laughs> and they just ride away on a motorcycle she's basically
1: a wannabe groupie but mm. she can't like she's stuck with Jeff Goldblum as the wacky motorcycle guy. Or then there is, you know, um, Keith Carradine as the glamorous Asshole. country singer who, who fucks everybody. Lily Tomlin. <laughs> yeah. Um, but watching it again, I was struck by how challenging the film is. So say the first hour of the movie is basically, it's 160 minutes, and the first hour is introducing all of these characters, but none of them get a big introduction we're basically just thrown into the movie with them and we hear little snatches of dialogue, we see little snatches of scenes. There's like no scene with a beginning, middle, and an end.
0: But I think that's probably one of the reasons that when Altman is on fire, he works so well because it he's demanding that you pay attention to these characters. Yeah. Because the way that you kind of get involved in the story is almost a mystery because you're trying to figure out who these people are and how do they connect with each other. And that's constantly being expanded as the movie goes along
1: and everyone's introduced sort of almost incidentally and Mm -hmm. uh, again as i said before he places such trust in you to be able to figure out who they are and what their relations are to each other and Everything that's important becomes clear, but he doesn't need to underline anything.
0: No, and that can be to his detriment in his lesser pictures, where it's characters you don't care about, and you're not involved in what's going on at all. So
1: I think we both decided to venture into what people would consider the bad Altman movies mm-hmm. this week. Uh, you watched O.C. and Stiggs. I watched Beyond Therapy.
0: Yeah, so O.C. and Stiggs is an 80s picture that Altman made in probably one of the roughest patches of his career, where he could not get like films released. Like, Health was a film that the studio just wouldn't put out.
1: After MASH, which was an enormous hit, he basically never had a hit again in the 70s. He had numerous movies that were well-received. Like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, critically. McCabe yeah. and Mrs. Miller, Nashville, uh, Thieves Like Us, California Split. And then there was a run of movies that weren't as well-received, like Quintet <laughs> and, and, and Health. Yeah. Um, and then there was Popeye, which was supposed, which we'll get back to but it was supposed to be a massive sort of superman level blockbuster and it
0: was it was very successful it made 60 million dollars at the box
1: office but it but basically it was supposed to make 120 yeah so
0: which is what like let's just talk about Popeye now yeah let, let's do it like whoever thought that Popeye was going to be like a breakout smash i i don't understand i mean, I mean I wasn't alive in the early 80s, so maybe Popeye was, like, the Mickey Mouse of the time.
1: Popeye was very popular. I mean, Hmm. the the boomer generation all grew up with
0: Popeye. Like the Max Fleischer cartoons?
1: Well, Max Fleischer and also all of the... There were a lot of Popeye cartoons that were made for television as well. Like, Popeye was a popular kind of local TV staple. It's hard to imagine that now because this kind of, like one-eyed ultra violent uh one-eyed sailor <laughs> who eats spinach i mean i don't know if the kids would love i'm that. really
0: <laughs> curious to see like how he lost his eye because it is canon yeah. that he only has one eye i just assumed for years he was squinting right. nope then that
1: eye's been gouged out and he's too proud to wear uh <laughs> to wear a patch yeah he probably has no depth
0: perception either well the creator of samurai jack uh tried to make a cgi popeye film just a few years ago coming off the success of his hotel transylvania film he even made a test reel in every that went on the internet and the studio would have nothing I thought fun. it looked fun that yeah gestural, it looked a lot yeah. of fun but the character of Popeye just doesn't have the kind of cultural penetration that he has now that he had before like when you think of Popeye you probably think of that supplement store yeah or the
1: chicken exactly machine.
0: well I mean the problem with Popeye
1: is he's super violent mm-hmm. which is not as politically incorrect anymore I mean if you watch some of those fly cartoons they are shockingly
0: violent I mean just <laughs> brutal. Popeye just ripping people's heads off Yeah, like seriously snapping arms
1: also Popeye smokes he's got a (laughs) he's got an ever-present pipe um, that's right. And also there is a line of Popeye candy cigarettes. <laughs> well,
0: are they still available
1: in Canada? They're or? called Popeye candy sticks now. Oh, okay. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to buy them and pretend I was smoking, of course. <laughs>
0: and you were the coolest kid on the playground. So Popeye the movie comes from the mind of really only one person, and that's mega producer Robert Evans.
1: Who, in a coke binge, decided what what we should do is should make a big budget Popeye movie directed by Robert Altman at his most Altman-esque. <laughs>
0: yep. What and I love give him this, all
1: his creative control. Like this movie, it's it feels like an uncompromised film mm-hmm. it feels it feels as much an Altman movie as mccabe and mrs miller
0: well the thing that most people remember about popeye is the insane set that was built just for the movie on the coast of malta i believe and which is still a tourist destination in malta it's popeye's village <laughs> a uh, theme park and it's funny that this is the set that they decided to build which is it's all like dilapidated and ugly looking and altman seems to try to avoid showing it as much as possible. So it's always kind of right on the edges of the frame. I think this movie is a real treasure. I love it. I appreciate it a lot. But at about an hour and a half in, I was like,
1: "No, nope, I'm good. <laughs> the last third of the movie is a problem. Yes. Uh, it runs out of steam. And also they ran out of money. This oh, movie they went like drastically over budget. And so that's the reason why the last 10 minutes of the movie are kind of such, a, such an anti-climax. Like
0: Popeye fights a lame looking ed wood style squid underwater and like you know bluto gets
1: one punch basically because they they just ran out of money it was going to be a much more elaborate action scene and there's there's just that kind of endless scene where they're both on everyone's on a boat like running around it takes
0: forever to like get to where yeah. they're trying to go
1: so that's a problem but i mean until then let, let's just talk about the set i mean it's like mccabe and mrs miller meets playtime but with popeye and i think it's uh, just the visual style and the style of the actors it's a perfect marriage of sensibilities between Robert Altman and the original Seeger comic strips.
0: Which the screenwriter was basing um, the movie on. He said, I don't want to take from the Fleischer cartoons. I want to take from the original Seeger comic strip, which was like Thimble Alley?
1: Thimble Theater. Yeah. And it definitely has that kind of like, salty, quirky quality
0: where everything's funny, but there aren't a lot of punchlines. I can't think of any movie that has more happening in the sides of the screen when the main action is unrolling in front of you. Like, there's characters and you will see them pop up from shot from shot doing something kind of amusing in the background. Well, I think
1: Popeye is a movie that merits repeated viewings because, like, there is a whole town here. Like Nashville, there are just tons of characters and it can take you a long time to even realize that the one police officer in the town is like a Frady Cat and can't can't enforce the law at all, just because he's always at the side of the frame shivering when Bluto's around.
0: Or he jumps out of the window in a horrifying stunt.
1: <laughs> or there's that like big boxer guy with his little mom. I-, I love the way the the movie begins because Popeye just shows up at Sweet Haven and everybody's walking around and As in Nashville, you're introduced to all these characters, incidentally. Like, Wimpy's there, but we have no big introduction for who Wimpy is. He's just this guy who's around eating hamburgers, and he's at the dinner table for some reason.
0: And like Nashville, this is basically a musical with Harry Nielsen songs that all the characters sing. But Altman made a point of it not being, like, these big choreographed numbers. Well, the
1: music, I think, is perfectly in line with the set of the movie and the performances, and that it's very kind of... Raggedy? (laughs) It's raggedy and spiky, and... uh, uh kind of atonal yeah <laughs> and also it's it's sung by Shelley duvall at her screechiest and robin williams talking at his one coke- side coke-iest. of his mouth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love those two performances by the way well Shelley
0: duvall first of all looks exactly like olive oil and i saw a lot of jokes that were like altman made the movie because he had made three women with duvall mm. and he went listen I just need you to be olive oil, because you look exactly like her. And she said that people, when she was a kid, would make fun of her giving her that nickname.
1: I mean, there is no perfect casting. I know the studio actually wanted Gilda
0: Radner for the role. And they wanted Dustin Hoffman to play Popeye. Oh, God, could you imagine? But Robin
1: Williams, also just amazing as Popeye. Yep. One of his most subtle performances. I his
0: think. film debut. Uh,
1: but yeah, I, I love the movie. I think it's great. I think everyone should see it. <laughs> yes.
0: And I've seen it many times. Have you? Have you seen it on the big screen? This feels like a film that, you know, you'd see announced like, it's playing in 70 millimeter, because that's the way that it would be oh, shown. I'd
1: love to. I actually think, like, this movie is still underrated, and I think it needs to be reclaimed. Well, somehow. it's it Just no... as an eccentric personal vision in the, in the guise of a blockbuster.
0: It's known as a kind of flop, and... And a misfire. But I think in the um, realms of Altman films, it's almost his purest vision. Like, it's what he likes to do and he's given like free reign on this insane world of Popeye. it's
1: definitely the biggest canvas he ever had i'm there are so many locations in the film not just the main set but there's also that like horse race place halfway through that's also don't forget the
0: floating uh madison square garden
1: (laughs) oh yeah where the big boxing match halfway through i don't know like popeye like a lot of his movies as I said before, it feels like a place that exists outside the camera. Mm-hmm. It feels like a place that could still be happening now. And it kind of feels like i think get merits repeated viewings the way Nashville and McCabe do, just as a place to hang out. You know? <laughs> and
0: it's also you real just... funny because it's on the cusp of, um, you know, these kind of movies being for kids, because this doesn't feel specifically for kids. While there's a lot of broad gags like Popeye's fist spinning around before it hits someone, Popeye also visits a house of ill repute where it seems like everybody is zonked out on opium well
1: actually that house of ill repute looks a lot like the one in McCabe and Mrs. Miller (laughs) and it's just presented in this like matter of fact way I actually watched this movie a lot when I was a kid really well and I remember finding it very challenging I I loved the Popeye cartoons when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and I loved Robin Williams and so I wanted to love this movie, but it's- And so you were
0: like, it really uh, reflects my um, ethos. I am what I am, <laughs> but, Will Sloan. <laughs> but I mean, the movie is
1: just so stubbornly Altman-esque that, I mean, I watched it a lot. I think not necessarily because I liked it, but more just because it was like a challenge to me. Mm. It was like, like-
0: Like, I should like this. I should.
1: It's got all the ingredients here and it's like, it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So let's get into the bad Altman.
1: Okay, so the in the 80s, basically, he was in the wilderness, but he never stopped working. Nope. He just was never able to work at the level that he was able to work in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So there were good movies in the 80s, like... Uh, Secret Honor, and in some people's opinion, come back to the Five and Dime Jim, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean.
0: Which was actually a film adaptation of a play that Altman directed with the same cast. And which, to be honest, I'm not crazy about. Uh, I, I didn't watch it, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote it on my list, and that was one where I went, I've seen enough Altman films for now. Because the thing about Altman is, he has a style. Mm-hmm. And while he's very varied in the subjects that he tackles, he applies the same style almost simultaneously on everything. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, he he made this O.C. and Stiggs, which I keep mentioning we don't get to. And, uh, <laughs> you know, after this big buildup, I have to say, didn't like it. OK,
1: I saw Ocean and Stiggs maybe seven or eight years ago because Nathan Rabin wrote uh, a reappraisal of it in the A.V. Club saying that it was almost kind of like a It was like a subversive parody of the 80s teen movie genre. And you're shaking your head. You know, Altman said
0: the same thing, which is he goes, I'm making fun of these movies. Not really, though. Not really. And like the two main characters are very, very hateful, like like, in a mash vein. And uh, that's funny at first. But when you realize that the film is about two hours long, that gets, you know, very tiring.
1: Uh, Okay, my memory of the movie, and I've almost completely forgotten it, but I remember uh, thinking... I remember having a good enough time with it just because it feels very altmanesque.
0: It is very Altman-esque. Yeah. Very kind of digressive. There's no real main plot other than Osi and Stiggs um, are torturing this uh, guy that owns an insurance company. And they are like, torturing him and his entire family also my
1: memory is that oc and stakes are like sketchier than most uh, Mm. characters that lead a major film so i watched beyond therapy which is considered one of his very worst it stars jeff goldblum and julie haggerty as two uh, what would be the right way to say this insane i think uh uh, heavily people who are in therapy the movie's not Whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: Back off, Will. (laughs) People therapy are insane. Well, the
1: movie's not especially woke in its uh, depiction depiction of therapy, but um, there are two um, people of questionable sanity who have uh, very strange relationships with their psychiatrists who may just be as crazy as they are. Um, Is it two hours long? It's, I think, uh, 95 minutes, which is why I watched it instead of one of the other ones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I have to say for about, oh, and Jeff Goldblum may or may not be bisexual. And he's got uh, his roommate, played by Christopher Guest, is quite uh, flamboyantly Mm. gay. Um, So the movie has uh, kind of a queer dimension to it that I could see it being reclaimed, but Mm. not. It's not a good movie. Not quite. Well, here's the thing. The opening scene, the first 10 or 15 minutes when Julie Haggerty and Jeff Goldblum are on a date together, it, it's this really weird date where, like, Jeff Goldblum keeps putting eye drops in his eye to make him cry, or and the scene climaxes with Julie Haggerty putting her bare foot on a table, and Jeff Goldblum says, you feel comfortable enough with me to put your feet on the table? And she says, I've only put one on the table. And then he starts licking her toes.
0: And, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like a great movie Well, to me. I, think
1: I was watching that, and I was thinking, geez, this is like proto-Tim and Eric. <laughs> and the movie has this almost, like, anti-comedy quality to it that... Kind of kept me going throughout. Problem is, it is unbearably tedious at times. So, but it's it's. I didn't find it wholly unlikable.
0: And Altman continued directing films every few years forever, and he got stars to be in his films. None of them were real big hits. And he did TV stuff. He did theater, like Tanner '88, which was a series that he did in um, '88, where
1: he had Michael Murphy playing a uh, Democrat. Uh, candidate for president and he basically followed the primaries and ran Michael Murphy as if he were an actual candidate and so in the show you can see him meeting like Ralph Nader and (laughs) other other big all the stars I started watching it I watched the first episode and I got and I gotta tell you I just I had trouble with it just because Donald Trump has rendered political satire obsolete. So <laughs> yeah. I was watching this thinking, God, I'm not in the right headspace for this.
0: <laughs> and in the 90s, he made um, movies like uh, Kansas City, which well, was like a noir.
1: Yeah, The Player was his big comeback. That's and right. And then Short Cuts. Yeah, which are two fantastic movies. Yeah,
0: great. And even in the 2000s, he had other hits like Gosford Park. Which
1: was a big late career triumph. Almost uh, Got him an Oscar nomination. And in fact... I encourage you to look up the video of Ron Howard winning an Oscar because Ron Howard beat Robert Altman and David Lynch for Mulholland Drive. And the camera cuts to the two of them like hugging each other in the audience. And you can see Robert Altman mouth to David Lynch. It's better that way.
0: (laughs) But Robert Altman did get one of those late fake... Um, you know, best life. Lifetime
1: Achievement Oscars. And it's a a beautiful speech where he reveals that 10 years earlier he had got a full heart transplant. A
0: full heart transplant? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. He probably killed a man for that. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. He's fucking Robert Altman. Have you ever seen A
1: Prairie Home Companion, his final film? I think it's a beautiful movie. Really? I don't even like Garrison Keillor.
0: Okay, Okay, yeah. Just the subject matter has been keeping me away. Even though that I remember when it was coming out, I was like, Paul Thomas Anderson is the director on standby? Yeah, helping uh, Robert Altman out, because at that point, Altman was on the doors of death. Right, but I mean, the movie is every bit
1: a Robert Altman film, and it has this kind of, I I don't know, like like so many of his best movies, it's hard to actually put into words, but you know it when you see it. It's just this kind of like beautiful elegiac tone to it. And yeah, I I think everything's firing on all cylinders.
0: And do you think that people have been inspired by Altman? Because you see this all the time as like, oh, this movie's Altman-esque.
1: Well, I mean, what that usually means is that it has a a large cast of characters like Boogie Nights or something like that. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think clearly a lot of people have been inspired by Altman. I mean, a lot of people have made sprawling, big cast movies like Nashville.
0: Altman's assistant director, Alan Rudolph, has been trying to make a career of that for 30 years and not succeeding too well. But I mean, a movie like
1: Magnolia, for instance, is much more heavy-handed
0: than anything. Well, it's like Scorsese meets Altman, right? So it's like right up there. But
1: I think Altman's, the form of some of his movies and his kind of rebellious, anti-authoritarian spirit has been much imitated. I think what his imitators don't have and which might be impossible for them to have in the system is his subtlety mm-hmm. like if you watch a movie like nashville if that had been released today
0: it would have been like one of those um uh, you know that emilio estevez movie that he made that was about yeah. um bob kennedy and his assassination right
1: a, a movie could not be that difficult today or if it was if somehow some, it would not
0: have that big a budget
1: well or it would be programmed at like the Wavelengths program at TIFF. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, you, all you have to look at is the reviews that have greeted some of Terrence Malick's recent movies, like Tree of Life, all of these like poptimists who are like, this is so arty. I can't like, <laughs> what, what is he even doing? Like, that's what would greet Nashville if it were released. You again. think so? Yeah, I think people would actually be resentful of it. Huh. That's yeah. a that's an interesting perspective on that that I hadn't actually thought of. Yeah. I mean, it would just be too challenging for people.
0: But you know, Robert Allman. People
1: are dumb. Is my point.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say that we um, missed probably a bunch of your favorite Robert Altman films, like *The Long Goodbye*, which we didn't even mention at all, Great which is film. an amazing film. Hey,
1: I just watched *McCabe and Mrs. Miller* again last night.
0: Fantastic! Uh,
1: maybe his best film. I mean, it's just unbelievably beautiful. One of the most beautiful films ever made, and just with a like like an overwhelmingly sad tone to it. Mm-hmm. You know, a beautiful film about capitalism. In fact,
0: so I think the lesson of this podcast is Robert Altman made. Tons of classics. He also made a lot of bad
1: ones. But even the bad ones, I think, have his spirit in them. yeah you know, you're you're giving me a weird look.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, they do. I would w- like. I don't know if I would enjoy watching no, all no. But bad
1: I ones. mean, OC and Stiggs, Beyond Therapy, I can watch them and be like, I can. Uh,
0: that's a Robert Altman. movie. Yeah, and I,
1: I'm getting a bit of his personality, and that will help me coast along through this. I haven't seen Quintet though, so maybe that's where. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the where it breaks.
0: Okay, so. We received some letters this week. Oh, hell yeah. And now I'm going to read them. So our first letter is from Chris Berube. Hey, Chris. He goes, hey team, first time, long time. After the Oscars, I re-listened to your Warren Beatty podcast, which is even funnier now because of his ritual humiliation on stage. (laughs) During that episode, you talked about Beatty's long, gestating, ultimately terrible passion project, Rules Don't Apply, and then previewed Martin Scorsese's Silence, another much-delayed film by a serious Hollywood player. I thought Silence was beautiful and haunting, but few people have seen it, and it only picked up one nomination at the Oscars. My question for you. Why do so many long, gestating Hollywood passion projects fail? And can you think of any that become hits or that work as cinema? Thanks, Chris.
1: Well, I think Silence is a great film. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. And I think it's a fucking shame that our culture rejected it. And I think Uh, we should all be ashamed of ourselves.
0: I'm going to be honest that I think that one of the reasons it didn't do so well is that the weird way it was released after Christmas. Yeah. That it kind of got buried by all the other films that come around December 25th, December 18th and stuff like that. I think that's
1: true. But I also think it's true that
0: people want religious films to just reaffirm what they always believe and not challenge them.
1: Yeah. Or, um, I I mean, the audience that goes to see a Kirk Cameron film isn't going to go see Silence. No. And also... The people that go see Wolf of Wall Street or The Departed or
0: something are not going to go see Silence.
1: Yeah, like p- uh, the themes that Scorsese was tackling are themes that just aren't that fashionable these days. You mm-hmm. know, faith and uh, the silence of God, uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. Every, every, everything that was in the movie. I mean, <laughs> so deep, man. And, and yeah, right. <laughs> and also, but also, like the movie is hard work.
0: It is. It's know? very slow, and it demands you to interact with it actively if you're yes. going to get something out of it.
1: Exactly. Um, which is uh, sadly not what a lot of people want for movies. No,
0: they just want to sit back and be enjoyed by Netflix. I
1: mean, uh, I, a lot of passion projects, you know, don't get don't get made because. They're bad? Well, because they're, yeah, like, I mean, a movie like uh, Barry Levinson's Toys was apparently one that he wanted to make, you know, before Diner, before Rain Man, before that whole st- string of movies that were big hits. And then he finally got to make it, and it was
0: terrible. Uh, or, or like um, the director of Tango and Caches, The Nutcracker 3D. <laughs>
1: well, he also wrote all those Tarkovsky films, Andrei <laughs> Konchalovsky. Yep. The Nutcracker 3D was a movie that he apparently wanted to make for 20 years and then it came out and i don't know there's something so beautiful about that isn't there just just like <laughs> no, a real swing no. swing for the fences <laughs> just Big, passionate movie that connects with absolutely no one. Just
0: falls flat
1: on its face. I,
0: he really thought that that Nazi iconography <laughs>
1: <laughs> link to rats was gonna work. The Nutcracker 3D, in, in which the story is that a rat Nazi king is rounding up all the toys in, like, Toyland and is sending them to the, to the gas chambers. And and he put lyrics on the Tchaikovsky music, too. Just to add to the to the miscalculation.
0: Passion projects often fail... Because the person who is passionate about it doesn't know how to communicate it with the audience. Like, it's important to them, and they can't find that through line to make it work. At the same time, passion projects are often talked about in terms of, he never got to make this, Mm -hmm. and now he gets to make it 30 years later. And the fact of the matter is, the person who wanted to make it is not the same person... Who right. gets to make it? Okay, a movie like that
1: would be Passion Play with Mickey Rourke. Oh, my God. Um, the guy who who made that, I think Mitch Glazer is his name. Yeah. He was an SNL writer back in the 70s. Good
0: friend of Bill Murray, and he wrote the original draft of Scrooged, which Bill Murray um, loved, and actually distance himself from the richard donner version because he's like well that's not what our original version was but that but passion Play is a movie that that guy apparently wanted to make like back in
1: the 80s and he finally got to make it 30 years later and he had mickey Rourke in it and you watch the movie it's like well maybe mickey Rourke would have worked in this in the 80s <laughs> but now that he's the like botoxed monster <laughs> that he is now it's just utterly laughable
0: when a passion project is immediate i think that it has more impact because like uh, Damien Chazelle's La La Land was yeah. a passion project for him, but it only like was over a five-year period. Yeah, like
1: well, I mean, lots of passion projects are successful, but we don't think of them in terms of that like film maudit mm-hmm. uh, category because they were successful. Or like Passion of the Christ. Which was a huge passion project for him. Like, imagine that. <laughs>
0: All the movies that are passion projects that have passion in the title.
1: <laughs> but, like, imagine if that one had been a failure. Like, mm-hmm. I actually think it would have more of a following amongst, like, cinephiles if it were a failure. Just yeah, it would be considered
0: so- this crazy thing that yeah. Mel Gitson spent money on. But instead, it was a huge hit. Yeah, it's it's...
1: When you think about it, it's such an eccentric vision, but unfortunately- I, I went
0: with my mother to see that movie. Yeah, I went with my dad. And I sat there being like, why am I watching this in the theater with my mom?
1: I haven't seen it since it came out, and uh, I'm curious how it holds up.
0: There's a special edition sitting on my shelf with like five commentary tracks oh, for all wow. the super fans. With Mel, where he yeah. probably starts talking about the Jews. We wanted to make sure that these high priests looked extra Jewy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the letter, Chris. And if anybody has any other ideas for passion projects, feel free to give us a, a, a shout. And I can't believe that I was about to change topics without mentioning the greatest passion project of all time. And that is Jerry Lewis's... Um, the day the clown cried. No, <laughs> no, you don't remember what Jerry Lewis's passion project—the one that he wanted to make oh. so bad. Oh, the, the Catcher catch- in the Rye. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he wanted to turn the classic JD Salinger book into a film, and, and he wanted to star in it because no one was more the main character than he was that's actually literally what he said to peter bogdanovich Mm -hmm. when he
1: interviewed him in 1962 he said you'll never see a more holden caulfield kind of guy than the guy that's sitting across from you right now and
0: he even wanted to play the character when he was in like his late 30s he's like i could do it i would give anything to see that movie
1: i would give five years of my life
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh it would be so weird wouldn't it yeah like if it would would it be like a, like a Jerry Lewis-style comedy, or would it be serious? Well, like, it might be, it be serious, but
1: I have a feeling it would still have that like bright primary color scheme mm-hmm. and all the big band swing music that's in all of his films. Man. i love
0: to imagine that he changes the style completely, and it's like handheld, just following, because like, that book is a day in the life, right? Speaking
1: of Jerry Lewis, uh, I love that his two favorite books are apparently Catcher in the Rye and The Fountainhead. Oof. He's a huge fan of The Fountainhead. I don't think he's actually like... I don't know. Aware of his politics, I don't think he's a Randian. I think he just likes the idea of like Howard Rourke, this Mm. like brilliant architect who's stymied by the critics who don't understand his genius.
0: (laughs) They don't understand hardly working and everything that I put into it. Yeah, we got another letter from loyal listener Andrew Barr. Hello, (laughs) (laughs) he goes will always like. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I put uh, incorrect punctuation on that. Will always likes to bring up the Stooges shorts, where Shemp died before they were completed. Have I brought that
1: up more than once? (laughs) I think you have.
0: As being a darkly fun thing to do. But if you want to go really dark, watch the shorts from 1944-45 after Curly's first stroke. (laughs) You can literally watch as his health declines. More and more of each of those shorts are made up of earlier shorts. It's Fun watching Mo slap around his brother, who is obviously not quite as quick as he used to be. Fun times. <laughs>
1: I have nothing to add except that Andrew's right. <laughs>
0: And we've talked about people that don't like Three Stooges, right? And how they're wrong? Well, you and I
1: uh, watched a Three Stooges short with Matthew Kumar once, Mm. host of the Loose Cannons podcast. And he sat there stone-faced. We watched A Plumbing We Will Go, which I think is just one of the funniest things that has ever been committed to celluloid. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we were laughing our asses off. Yeah. Him, stone (laughs) silence.
0: I don't know how to account for it. (laughs) Yeah. You can bring a horse to water, right? But that's all you can do.
1: But well, okay, that short, though, has, I think, one of the funniest moments ever in it, which is when Curly is trying to fix the leak in the bathtub, and he keeps putting putting a new pipe
0: yep and it keeps splashing into his face and he
1: does this look each time where he's like he he puts in the pipe and he's like ah you know and he smiles and then he looks at the other end of the pipe (laughs) and "Ah." he sees the water is still coming out of it he's like "Ah." (laughs) and then if climaxing with him trapping himself in a cage of pipes a plumbing we will go look it up it's a brilliant
0: film all right we have a lot of housekeeping today because we also have that contest that we mentioned two weeks ago yes still still going we've got a few entries yep and the contest for people that didn't listen to our Adam McGorian episode is that we just want you to go out in the world in advertising Port Cinema Club for free, write a post <laughs> on some weird website, um write an article for wherever you um write for I guess yes, or. Go wild, post something in the real world, Uh, paint a giant mural of me and Will, I don't know, dress up as me and Will and pretend to be having a podcast on the street. Yeah, start a fan page. Yeah. Do do whatever need be done. Rob a bank in our name. (laughs) And donate the money to us. Yeah. And, you know, the most creative person wins. And let's be honest, if you like sit there for like 10 minutes and you're like, I got an idea, you'll probably win. Yeah. And, we've had some good entries so far. Yeah, we have. About. But we don't. Yeah. come on, we
1: don't want people to not advertise us. That's right. I, I mean, let, OK, let's put this way: We've had good entries, but we've also had easily beatable entries.
0: <laughs> so, you know. You can uh, send us a photo or just a link to where you share this free publicity at Podcast at gmail.com or send us any questions or comments that you have. Yeah. Okay. And
1: if you don't win the contest, we will still send you a certificate naming you an <laughs> Important Cinema Club Cinema Boy
0: and we will sign it. <laughs> (laughs) I don't know if you can come up with a better name. (laughs) I think I can come up with a better name. Okay. And um, the winner of the contest, which I didn't mention, gets to pick a subject of an episode. Yeah. Like any subject. And we have to do it. (laughs) Yeah, we have to do it. (laughs) I was thinking, I'm like, it can't be that bad. And then people were like throwing subjects at me and I'm like, oh man, I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, let's not give them any ideas. (laughs) And now it's time for something really important in the history of the important cinema club. Done a lot of episodes, right? I think we're like 60-something. Sure. And now we're pitifully begging you for money. (laughs)
1: listen th- this podcast don't pay for itself no
0: it doesn't <laughs> it takes a lot of hours will let's to take the subway to come see me <laughs> the rent on this place i like a lot of people say like oh you know this big super important podcast that we're doing we need donations to keep the lights on i'm always like come on guys if you really wanted to record this you'd have no problems now not the important cinema club yeah. i am pitifully poor <laughs> And my debt collector is at the door right now,
1: (laughs) banging on it.
0: So what we're going to be doing is we're going to start uh, a Patreon account. Oh, God. And um, you can find it probably if you just search the Important Cinema Club podcast uh, and Patreon. We'll link to
1: it in the notes for this episode.
0: Yep, that's right. And the way that we're going to do it is five bucks a month, and we're going to do an actual episode every week Mm. that only patreon listeners can listen to
1: it will not be as long as the current episodes
0: unless like we get like twenty thousand dollars yeah yeah yeah. if we get
1: twenty thousand dollars then we do an extra episode every (laughs)
0: week like a full episode yeah we will so get your friends we'll be the new (laughs) chapo yeah that's right because they make what forty two thousand dollars a month it's insane that is listen if we could get that
1: I don't. Th- I don't think we quite have the listener base to get to that. Do you think
0: we have like an eccentric millionaire who's like, I don't even know, like in Patreon, like can you donate? You're like, I want to give ten thousand dollars a month. Probably, if they right? Want
1: to? Hey, if there's an angel investor out there who wants to start like Important Cinema Club Productions, <laughs> then we can just we like, can do quit our public our access and, TV yeah. shows
0: and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. If
1: there's anyone out there who wants to fund the Important Cinema Club movie, <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? I'd, Me and you talking. I'm actually movies. be kind of like Entourage. <laughs>
0: So uh, this week, we're going to be doing an episode on Zodiac, uh, David Fincher's classic, which is its 10th anniversary this week. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, donate five bucks and you can go and listen to it right now. What are we doing for the next canonical episode? (laughs) Canonical? They're all canonical. Yeah. Oh, it's like the uh, Patreon ones, um, like Elseworlds, where like you're evil, (laughs) I'm evil too. We could do that. Oh yeah, you don't know. You'd have to donate to Patreon to find out. Next week, we're going to, you know, get a little bit academic. That joke never gets old. We're going to be doing
1: Bruceploitation. What is Bruceploitation, you may be asking? Well, after uh, the legendary martial artist and actor Bruce Lee died in 1973. After only
0: four starring roles. only
1: four starring films a cottage industry emerged in Hong Kong of imitators making Bruce Lee-like films. There was Bruce Lai, uh, who starred in such films as Fist of Fury Part II, Soul Brothers of Kung Fu, and Exit the Dragon, Enter the Tiger. There was Bruce Le, who starred in such films as Enter the Game of Death, and uh, Bruce and Shaolin Kung Fu. There was Dragon Lee. There was Bruce Lei. There was Bruce Tai. There was a, a whole... There was Bruce Lang, who made uh, The Dragon Lives Again.
0: One of the craziest... Uh... Bruce exploitation pictures also spoiler one of the most boring
1: oh I like it but whatever (laughs) yo we'll get
0: into that next week
1: so should we center the discussion around any particular
0: films Mm -hmm.
1: anything you'd like to talk about
0: let's do Fist of Fury we, got, we need a real Bruce Lee in there. Okay. And then let's do... Hmm. The thing about Exploitation is that every actor has their own vein, right?
1: Well, okay, here, Like here's the thing. What if we say Fist Fury later? Because I actually feel like Bruce Lee himself could
0: merit another episode further down the line. Okay. You don't think so? Well, I feel like we're going to tackle it in the episode as okay, well. Okay, okay. Oh, wow, this is like the important cinema club science lab where okay. you can like, hear as the process evolves. <laughs> well, okay, I'm just going to throw out some movies that I love and then I'm going to want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we're just going to talk about all the Bruce Boy so, I've already watched like a dozen in the last two weeks. So. so like catch
1: up on movies like Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, The Clones of Bruce Lee, <laughs> Exit the Dragon of the Tiger. Yeah, perhaps. The
0: Chinese Stuntman.
1: Yeah, Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. Uh,
0: Enter the Game of Death, Challenge of the Tiger. Those are two great Gr- Bruce Lee ones. Great
1: films. Um, yeah, tons of others. Uh, Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth.
0: Oh yeah, that's the one that actually has a kind of um, important director, uh, who the man who produced the Jackie Chan Breakout Vehicles, Drunken Master, and Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. Right, Aang Si-Yoon. And Bruce Lee the Man
1: the Myth was also shot on three continents.
0: (laughs) Badly. (laughs) So, that's what we're going to do next week. I feel like it's going to be a long episode. I'm excited. (laughs) So, check those out. My name's Justin The Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. The new horror film from Blumhouse Pictures, Get Out, just came out. From the mind of Jordan Peele, as the posters say. And it's one of those rare films that was almost completely positively reviewed. Like, I I can't even imagine something on this wide a scale that was liked by so many people. And especially a horror movie, an Mm -hmm.
1: exploitation movie, basically. From a first-time director. It was 100% on Rotten Tomatoes until one man came along to bust that perfect number.
0: (laughs) And I thought this man was not listed on Rotten Tomatoes anymore. That through a series of events, he got, like, booted off for some reason. Sure. But that's not true. He's still
1: on there. Rumpelstiltskin-like, the minute you say 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, this man's name will come up. And it is... Armin
0: white. Okay. What's your relationship with Armand White? He's the reviewer that, when you first getting into movies, you run in into as the guy who's the contrarian. Mm-hmm. He's the one who gives Transformers: uh, Revenge of the Fallen a glowing review, who compares Jack and Jill to the works of Ernest Lubitsch,
1: and every time a black themed film has come along, he has compared it unfavorably to Norbit, starring Eddie Murphy. Perhaps it's worth noting that. Armand White is a gay black Republican, Mm -hmm. which I would say makes him a niche demographic.
0: Yes. I mean, he writes for two uh, publications that are completely disparate in their kind of ideologies. I think he writes for Out magazine. Mm -hmm. And he also writes for the National Review, which is a famously Republican publication.
1: But for many years, he also wrote for an alt weekly called the New York Press, which I guess I I don't really know a lot about it. But I think it was like maybe a more right leaning version of the village voice.
0: And they had like a whole cavalcade of famous critics. Mm -hmm. And Armin White for a while was a very kind of respected critic. He had opinions that were out of the norm. But he was kind of well regarded enough that his essays can be found in stuff like the White Dog Criterion release.
1: Yeah, and I I think Pauline Kael was an early champion of him as well. I mean, he's been coasting for a long time on this idea that he's this kind of like a a Lester Bangs of film criticism, but... but like, his reviews are so racially charged, too. I mean, honestly, I think he's a really bad writer and a really bad thinker, but he brings a lot of intellectual bullying tac- tactics to That's his right. reviews. Yeah,
0: where at a certain point, Armin White made a decision, which was, I'm going to go against whatever the norm is, to the point that it doesn't feel like he has a personal, critical opinion It's just that whatever is popular, he will go in the opposite direction.
1: I often see people defending Armand White. Well, first of all, I often see people rising to his bait in a way that I think is unnecessary.
0: A friend of ours said that he appreciates Armand White because White forces people reading his work to question what they like about the movie to see if they can stand their ground about what their opinion is and that he's mi- asking those questions i don't know if i agree with that yeah i hear that a lot and
1: i don't think it's true i think whenever you read his reviews i mean okay inevitably a stopped clock is right twice a day <laughs> yeah, that's right. so you know he has this uh, tactic that he does for a lot of black themed films where he basically Kind of accuses the filmmaker of being an Uncle Tom, you Mm -hmm. know, for for white audiences. I mean, I'm not sure I would put it in those words, but a movie like Precious uh, with Lee Daniels, with its depiction of kind of a welfare queen mother... I I think it's telling that that movie found a big white audience Mm -hmm. and with its kind of like horror show depiction of black life. So, you know, maybe Armand White's right in that case. But I mean, for the most part, I think there's a mean spiritedness to his writing, especially when it comes to black themed movies. There's this kind of a hectoring of the viewer. And also, I think you can sense in a lot of his reviews, this idea that he's just going to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So well, his writing
0: is often incomprehensible. Yeah, like he's throwing a literary or cinematic antecedents. And you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you be referencing that? Or
1: he'll do a thing like, uh, I remember in a review of, of all things, the invention of lying by uh, the Ricky Gervais film where he said something like it's, it's the biggest Hollywood con job since the days of Billy Wilder. And you mm-hmm. read that and you're like, wait, Billy Wilder. So <laughs> so he throws a lot of stuff that is designed to, like, rock Rally you up. over a little yeah. bit and to, to keep you keep you uncertain and I think it's just like an intellectual bullying tactic frankly I don't think
0: he's a very good communicator because I don't think he really knows what he even wants to say I always remember this segment from his review for Jonah Hex which is a much reviled DC comic adaptation about Josh Brolin as a scarred gunman who can for some reason raise the dead right and um, Armin White wrote without a 50 million dollar ad budget to make Jonah Hex seem important the media feels free to trash it doing so exposes their collusion with marketing and refuse her to re- read film for personal reflection. True art is watching hot chick Megan Fox as Lila the Hooker fearlessly staring at the most grotesque side of Jonah's face, as if coming to grips with her own exploitation. Beautiful and brilliant. I previously remarked how Neville Dean Taylor stands so lonely on the culture's edge that their au courant ingenuity seems absolutely avant-garde when compared to standard box office formula. Greed is a cultural hex
1: yeah it's incomprehensible but it's got a lot of big words in it and it's just designed to to bully the reader exactly yeah but i do kind of get a kick out i mean i wish he were better because i like his contrarian impulse Mm -hmm. um and you know every once in a while he'll write something that'll make me laugh so like i think his out magazine columns are really funny like there was one about 300 rise of an empire where (laughs) it opens with so like in his national review articles he's very like conservative republican it's always about the failures of the obama administration blah 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 but his out reviews are very gay and the one for 300 starts if the hairs on the back of a man's neck make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up along with other erogenous parts then 300 rise of an empire is a movie for you Produced by Zack Snyder, who directed the original, it continues Snyder's revolution in movie eroticism, especially masculine eroticism. Remember how muscle bound Henry Cavill entered Snyder's Man of Steel by bursting through a wall in flames? Snyder brings sexuality to the graphic novel Spectacular. So I read that and I think it's funny, but like to what end, honestly? Uh, And I honestly think. I don't know, I, like, it feels like every time he has a review, my Twitter is just full of people getting either Don't outraged, jump to his
0: bait! Yeah, like, like... I mean, Armin White has to pay the bills. Yeah. So, like, that's what he wants. He wants people to be resharing this stuff. But, you know, he had a an article in the
1: National Review this week that I also think gets to what's wrong with his writing, where he was talking about the Oscars, and of course, he didn't like La La Land or Moonlight. And he said something about how that moment when the producer of La La Land ripped the ballot from... Uh, warren Beatty's hand and read it was symptomatic of the disrespect that uh modern film culture has to its oh come on and and i think there's just like such a lack of empathy there for kind of the fact
0: that a
1: guy found himself in a really terrible position on stage i don't
0: know well he's very mean-spirited yeah and i think that's the thing that makes me dislike his work the most like if it was really crazy and he was passionate about what he was talking about that would be different but he's just trying to knock things down which is very unappealing. and i see no coherent worldview
1: there either except just this kind of impulse to dislike whatever's popular for kind of vaguely racially charged reasons oftentimes even
0: though he will go down as in history as the man who got kicked out of a critics organization.
1: Yeah, the New York Film Critics Association, because...
0: He, uh, <laughs> when 12 Years a Slave won an award, and Steve McQueen went up to go get it, Armin White, at the top of his lungs, screamed, You're a garbage man! Like, You're a
1: garbage man and a doorman, which is basically calling him an Uncle Tom. I think Armin White's got a lot of nerve calling the producer of La La Land, you know, disrespectful of, mm. of somebody if he's doing a thing like that at an award show. So the lesson here is, keep rooting Armin White. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, I get to read him because I'm, I'm cool and I'm smart, but you guys should just ignore him.
0: But you do have a book of his <laughs> criticism on your shelf, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do. His, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's that book from his, of his like nineties criticism. It, that was from the time when he was considered respectable. A little bit more coherent. Yeah. I mean, I, I never read it. I don't <laughs> think it's that good. But
0: <laughs> this podcast was produced and edited by Can Make Productions.